Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is a zoologist and science communicator whose first book, Forget Me Not, explores the lesser-known species threatened by climate breakdown here in the UK. With a down-to-earth, fresh writing style, they take the reader on a low-carbon journey, travelling the length and breadth of the British Isles to seek out 10 animals and habitats threatened by climate change in the 21st century, ranging from seagrass and salmon to mountain hares. Forget Me Not is a simultaneously funny, accessible and thought-provoking passionate call to action and a reminder that we all have a part to play in protecting the magic of the land around us. Indeed, we really can't afford not to. I'm so grateful to Kendall Mountain Festival for connecting us um, and to now welcome them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing on Running on Joy. Hello, <laughs> my name is Sophie Pavel and I'm delighted to be here on Running on Joy. It, um, I don't really know how to follow that introduction, that was very <laughs> generous. Um, but I guess I am sort of figuring my way into the space of natural history writing and natural history conservation communications, while still very much figuring out what I'm doing with my life and kind of feeling like I'm spectacularly winging it. So I'm very open to trying new things and um, writing a book and being here talking about it was definitely not part of the plan. So it's kind of made me feel open-minded as to what might be coming up. But I like telling stories and I like making people excited about the small things and the simple things that are easy to forget. And I think, um, you know, everyone loves an underdog. And so I quite like shining a spotlight in my own little weird way um on the things that I think need a little bit more love and attention it's really interesting what you say there Sophie because you address this notion of imposter syndrome in your book and actually you thank me for my introduction but it only really covered the Bloomsbury published author part because you're also a presenter journalist you're an ambassador for the wildlife trust you're a campaigns director for the beaver trust you sit on the RSPBB advisory committee for England and you've not only done your low carbon um, endangered species trip but also hiked southwest coast path for charity so from the outset anyone <laughs> would think that's a pretty seasoned veteran CV there um, so <laughs> where does this sense of being an imposter come from do you think? Oh that's a really interesting question I I don't really know I think it's something that has kind of always been there and always will be there and I think the more you talk about it the more you realize that actually I think everybody has to some degree an imposter syndrome kind of approach to their work and I kind of always assumed that it was mainly a female thing and of course largely it is I think we're perhaps more open about it but actually speaking to a lot of men about it a lot of them also feel the same and so I don't know if it's this kind of culture that we're normalizing where you sort of are almost in uh I don't I want to say performative, but I don't know if that's the right word, but you're sort of encouraging this culture of not quite feeling good enough and feeling like you've got to do more and, and nothing's ever quite enough and um you've got to keep on striving, keep on striving instead of actually taking a look at, at what you've done and what you're doing and, and feeling content with that um 
I think in terms of sort of main imposter syndrome feeling, I think it's just the fact that um, I never expected to be in this space. I never knew what I wanted to do. I never knew how to look for wildlife. I was never trained in how to ID wildlife. I never had a burning desire to collect feathers and shells and find out everything about them. I far more enjoyed, you know, tracing around in the mud and um, just being out outdoors and not really thinking too much further than that. And so now that I'm now an author, which still feels very weird to say, of narrative nonfiction, in a genre of natural history and travel writing, which is so revered and beloved in the UK and beyond. And the genre has largely been dominated by men of a certain age and of a certain level of experience and knowledge and academia. Um, it's, it's really intimidating. And I knew that my writing style was different and I knew that it was risky because it slight it was it's ever so slightly derailing and disruptive to the way that people normally write about nature um and i it was deliberate to do that and it, it was the only way i felt that i could write about these topics um because i'm not an expert i'm just more a messenger and so i think with all of that and with the fear of releasing something into a world that has a set idea as to what natural history writing what nature writing is and hoping that people will get it and hoping that it will reach people who perhaps have to this point felt that nature writing perhaps isn't for them and that they need to have a certain level of experience and knowledge and um, passion for nature in order to sort of be let into what I felt was quite an exclusive club. Um, hopefully uh, that's what I hoped people would feel, but um, I think, it, yeah, I think it's the intimidation of writing about the climate and people being like well, what has someone in their 20s got to say about this you know they haven't lived they haven't been in the world long enough they don't have enough experience but actually I think it's the people in our age group of 20s and 30s who have everything to say about it because we're inheriting it um, and we're having to deal with the fallout of it and so it's been an amazing opportunity to have a publisher who has been championing these you know young voices and, and wanting to hear from us um so i think imposter syndrome can be a good thing i think it has energized me and kept me in check and kept me motivated because i think not that i feel like i've got something to prove it's more just a bit of a, a i don't know kick up the ass sometimes of come on you know let's see what you've got um so yeah but I think it will always be there. I think the awareness is the hardest thing. And then once you're aware of it, you can sort of push it to one side and um, not let it, have, let it have too much say. And it's interesting what you say there, because it sounds like you are also open to being in a constant process of, of learning and being curious and um, and having the humility to be to be educated. And then actually what you are, trying to do is to spread knowledge and, and people are most engaged and open to learning when when they love something um, and a lot of the themes that crop up in your work are about love and what being outdoors in a really raw way means to you and then how that love is a drive towards that will to protect what you love as well and there's a really lovely line that I picked up on from your social media where you're very active in, in trying to engage the audience that you were just speaking about um, in your work. Um, and you're describing cold water swimming and you say breath deepens, brain empties and sharpens, senses whittled, salt seasons, ready to go again. Um, it's not only the alliteration that I really like that, but <laughs> but just the, the, the real kind of um, sensuality of that as well um and I wonder what does connection to nature awaken in you and where did that love originate do you think oh um that's a really love that's really disarmed me that question because I think uh, every interview I've done um everybody just wants to talk about the climate and the species and the conservation and the extinction risk and what can we do and what can we all do and and those are all really important conversations to have but i've never been asked about 
the love part of it. People have commented, you know, that the, the book is is warm and has undertones of a, a sort of a love letter. Um, but it's something that I that was really important to me to carry through the narrative is ultimately we want our relationship with nature to be like that with a parent or with a sibling or a dear friend where you're in it for the long game. And I think that emotion um, has, I don't know, I guess it's, I, I, I owe a lot to my parents. Um, I come from a family where my parents divorced when I was 10, which was a really sensitive age for that to happen um, and very difficult. But the love that they had for us triumphed over all of the pain. And I think they've always been really good at demonstrating unconditional love. And so I think that became like a subconscious way of living and being for me and my brother. And my parents are very inspiring to me because they're, they sort of, the way that they deal with and have dealt with significant challenges of, you know, letting the stressful side of the anxiety and stuff be a short term thing and not letting it drown them. Um, and ultimately to, take a kind of compassionate loving approach to, to everything and everyone and so I think seeing how they dealt with challenges and also interacting with nature and giving us the safe space to be able to express ourselves in that way and not be afraid to love um, you know I had guinea pigs who I who who <laughs> which I talk about in the book and I loved them fiercely and I remember from a very young age having this almost obsessive adoration of things that moved and things that grew. Not that I wanted to know about them and how they worked. I just wanted them to be okay. Um, and so I think that that has just become a way that I have approached the outdoors and I want other people to feel it too, because it's amazing. It's not necessarily spiritual or, or anything like that. You know, it doesn't make me cry. Um, I've never sort of looked to the natural landscape and, and felt really, Tearful in that sense, but I think there's something to be said for just allowing yourself, and we all have it, to reconnect with the innate draw that we all have to natural landscapes, because that is the only way that we are going to have the incentive to protect it for the long term. If we found our personal connection to it, and it's totally subjective, and it doesn't have to be easily describable often it's really difficult to express um only then will we be able to will we be able to help people understand the the very simple thing of you know protect what you love because when it's gone you'll only know what you've had when it's gone and we don't want to be in that position where we're lamenting the loss of something that is going to be something that we'll grieve really hard for as in nature and natural spaces and key species so I think it's something I've always had something that's really important to me being in um being emotional about it all um it's very nostalgic I, I'm very open to nostalgia and I think nostalgia is a really powerful emotion to have and it can be really energizing if it's used and harnessed well um but yeah I think encouraging an emotional connection is the first step to ensuring practical action that will actually have a difference in the long term. And I think also that you're sort of making a differentiation between true love for something, like the love for your guinea pigs, which you were willing to <laughs> <True> defend, <love. laughs> defend and fight for, true guinea pig love. Absolutely. <laughs> but that and that um romanticizing of the landscape mm. like you get in you know any any romantic poets lines mm -hmm. worth their salt which actually distance us from the landscape mm, in a way because it's that like when you're in love with a person as well you can put them on a pedestal and and write odes to them rosy glasses yeah yeah which is totally not what you're writing is about like you say not being moved to tears by a landscape but being moved to action by mm. sincere guinea pig love <laughs> <laughs> I love that yes it's feeling protective of it it's you know how would you protect a sibling 
or a member of your family if they were in danger and needed help and you'd feel really and it well i'd like to think that anyone would feel really energized and fired fired up and that's how we need to approach the climate and biodiversity crisis i think and i know in in your short film um journey to the sea you talk about the lure of newness that can be discovered close to home and do you think that cultivation of that sort of familial landscape relationship with the land is that part of that advocacy as well and what have you learned from your doorstep um yeah totally I think it's all really interconnected I think we all discovered in lockdown the power of the daily walk and the doorstep nature whatever that looks like you know whether it was rolling hills in Dorset where you could still see the sea or whether it was just a local urban park everybody oh well I would defy anyone to say that they didn't find some solace in nature during that time when we were locked down in the pandemic and I think there's something really beautiful about your doorstep because it's the repetitive nature of it which is comforting in terms of it's there it's the constant of it but then also the more you look at it the more you realize it's totally dynamic and it has its own rhythm and its own timetable and to watch the same tree go through all four seasons and in between um, and see how it changes is a real a really important anchor I think to our well-being and mental health and our understanding of the natural world because it reminds us that despite all the hustle and change and unpredictability that's in the world at the moment nature still operates under its own rhythm and we can we know that spring is coming we know that summer will follow we know that a version of awesome whatever it will look like will follow that and winter and so on and I think, again, it's all about that emotional connection and just tuning in and just allowing your body to kind of be a bit on a par with what's happening in your natural landscape. And when you're outside, look at the sky, look at the clouds, as kind of cliche as it sounds, just um, let yourself be in the landscape for a minute, stop looking at your phone, allow your senses to kind of um, hone in on, on what they can hear and smell and see. And, and that there's so much science to show the physiological reactions that happen in your body when you allow yourself to pass through a landscape that is easily accessible and hasn't been an ordeal um, to get there of, of calming your stress hormones and boosting your feel good hormones and just letting your body engage in a parasympathetic kind of calm state of mind. And then we're more receptive to new information. We're more receptive to change. We're more resilient. And so it's this wonderful feedback loop of um, positivity in a way. And so I think I've certainly found that connecting to the landscape on my doorstep has just always been rewarding because you think you know something really well. You think you know a path really well, an area of woodland, a park. But then the more you go to it, the more you realise how much it's changing constantly. And it's really exciting you sort of go and think, well, what will I see this time? Because yesterday I saw this and then that wasn't there. And then I heard that, but then I didn't hear them again. So um, it's it's just I think it's just it's just great all around for your health and well-being. And I think it just feels right. It feels quite primal. It feels like what we're meant to be doing. It reminds us of how much we complicate our lives. Um, and I think, again, that's a really powerful first step to help someone who's feeling a bit lost, but wanting to maybe help or reignite curiosity about nature to just encourage them to get to know their doorstep. And the repetition of that will form a habit, which will then form a lifelong, hopefully, bond with that place. I love that idea of symbiosis there, of like being and, and breathing together. Mm and changing too through through those cycles and mm -hmm. I know that you're a trail runner as well and I love very good you. one <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no version of good at all I think for trail running but I know that you completed a trail run after some cycles of injury and, and knee surgery mm. um and I really liked a reflection that you that you wrote about that that it's so easy to forget 
the human ability to adapt, build resilience and adapt again. And since we've kind of been discussing this synergy between man and, and land, do you think the same resilience can be seen in the natural world too? Or I guess in other words, do we have reason to be hopeful? <laughs> oh, we absolutely do. I mean, I think we, um, one of the the hopeful things through the whole book writing process was a reminder of how many species, for example, the mountain hare, um, have gone through and survived and come out the other side. Um, enormous climatic challenges and enormous changes in the landscape and in habitat quality and availability, totally different to what they're experiencing today because that's largely human-induced. But in terms of dealing with earthly stresses and pressures in, you know, eras gone by, um, they've done that and they've adapted and they have, they are the the finished product, if you like, of a mountain hare is a, a sort of ancient symbol of enormous adaptation and evolution and action um, because those stresses have just prodded it and poked it and nudged it to adapt, 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 be more resilient, find new solutions to things. Um, and lots, many species are encountering that moment again where we're forcing them to adapt and the evolution can't necessarily do that fast enough. It takes millions of years to find new colours of fur to blend in with a new landscape, for example. Um, but species that um, are keystone and vital and do amazing things for free, like the beaver, which is very close to my heart for many reasons, um, show us that if given the space and the opportunity, they can restore resilience to a failing river within weeks. They can cause a drying landscape to retain water in a way that it hasn't for 400 years when beavers were last here. They can store carbon, they can reduce the peak flow rate of a river, slow the flow, reduce flood risk to communities, Flooding risk and drought are increasing um, extreme weather threats to the UK, particularly with climate change. And with all of that, they can boost biodiversity in so many ways in riparian habitats. Um, and so there are so many case studies now across Europe and then now in Britain where beavers are returning, where biodiversity and soil quality and carbon capture, flood risk, drought risk are all benefiting from the presence of this one animal um, and then because no species exists in isolation this has a domino effect across the whole food chain to make it more resilient and so by reintroducing species that are ecosystem, ecosystem engineers and keystone species that have a real central strong place in a strong food web like predators like beavers like birds of prey, um, certain plant species, woodland, etc. Um, they can allow nature to be incredibly resilient so that the changes that are forecast and are happening can have an impact that won't be devastating, that will be more of a, hopefully a notch and not a great big, uh, where's my metaphor, <laughs> chunk. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think in that way that we have a lot to learn from creatures such as beavers that are sort of emblematic of the need to embrace change in the sense that they are both disruptors and rebuilders yeah. of ecosystems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've nailed the ethos of Beaver Trust when it was set up by James Wallace, who is our first chief exec, who said that beavers are the totem for change and restoration and they are a positive disruptor and they disrupt not only physically but also i think they disrupt our psyche as a society and they are a real test for how ready are we for change how able are we and willing to accept change and how are we going to embrace the changes that are unfolding very quickly to our natural landscape and i think if we can get over that and get over ourselves and realize that 
the benefits outweigh the costs and that the reintroductions are science-led and there will always be trade-offs, but they can be managed. Um, then the the faster we will, the more time we'll be giving ourselves basically to adapt and be resilient. And so I think um, having species like the beaver that are, as you say, emblems of that are so important because they remind us of kind of what we're dealing with, but they also are exciting and they are an amazing opportunity for us to do something different and for us to take control of the future a bit better and to lean on natural services that exist in their huge numbers across nature um, and sort of let go of our own ego a little bit. And I guess kind of rediscovering their magic as part of a living fabric of our ecosystems as well because I think some of these animals like hares as well they do have that sort of totemic mystical quality but kind of also byproduct of their scarcity and really we need to kind of re-recognize their ancient wisdom but as a mm. part of a living landscape rather than mm. one of just nostalgia I guess yeah totally I mean species like the hare and the salmon um and um any any animal you know in Britain we've written about this is kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about natural history is such a revered genre we have some of the best works of literature that talk about animals and mystical creatures and weaving species that are native to the British Isles into like iconic folklore and fables and poetry and so if kind of reminding people of their significance culturally helps them cotton on to the fact that we can't afford to lose them then that is an amazing thing and I think um we're so used to wanting to compartmentalize not only the natural world into neat lines and boxes and labels and everything and we're reluctant when it spills over those lines because we think oh gosh you know it's going wild and it's rabid and out of control but we also want to do that for different disciplines as well and so science and art have historically been so separated but actually they complement each other so much and it's so important that we embrace the qualities that allow them to tussle with each other and weave in and out and to and to make each other better as um topics and areas where people can really find something that's for them because we're not going to reach a wide enough audience to make change if we carry on wanting to put everything in silos and boxes and not appreciating the blend of um just the, the ways in which the natural world kind of has crept into every part of our lives over our whole history, um, whether or not we've realised that. Mm. And thinking about change as well, Forget Me Not is, is, as we've said, sort of a love letter to the British Isles, but you're originally from urban America. And I wonder what was childhood like for you and how did your relationship with the UK countryside and coastline grow? Um, well, uh, so I was born in Augusta, Georgia in the deep south um, and we moved here when I was just about to turn five. So I have very, very fragmented memories that are mainly supplemented by home videos. But what, <laughs> from, what, <laughs> from what I understand um, from stories and things that my parents have told and learning about it, it was just kind of suburban life. My dad was in the Navy. My mum was a stay-at-home mum raising me and my brother. And it was a very hot, humid climate. We would go from air-conditioned car to air-conditioned shop to air-conditioned supermarket to air-conditioned house. Um, it was actually a weirdly interior existence because it was just so hot and humid all the time. Um, but my mum's British and um, she stayed over there for 10 years and then had us. And then the plan was always to move back to Britain um, to raise us because I think my mum was also in the Navy or had also been in the Royal Navy. And um, I think they had both had quite adventurous, exciting young 20s doing stuff with the navy and traveling and they naturally i think wanted us to have a bit of that and i think mum having grown up in the uk knew that 
how special it was and that you could sort of be in any environment within a day mountains city moorland coast island and um they both wanted that uh for us and dad had done um a sort of exchange officer tour over in cornwall with the us navy and so was then exposed to the southwest and the amazing coastline and everything and so they both settled on the southwest and so we went from urban america to this tiny sleepy little fishing village on the accessory called limpston where we spent the first um three years of our lives here growing up with the beach as our garden and looking at crabs under stones and the estuary the smell being in our hair and in our clothes and constantly around us and our washing line was actually and they're still like that um i don't know far from there now uh strung over the beach and so sometimes at high tide our washing would dip into the river water um and then this sounds really idyllic and it really was but also the flat was like completely riddled with damp and everything and was very cold but at high tide the the waves if it was really stormy would sometimes splash up onto the lounge window and so it was a real almost actual baptism of britain and of the natural world for us and obviously being five and seven we just soaked that up like sponges and i think we're completely bewitched by it and have been ever since and so i'm always so grateful to my parents for having chosen that and been in a position to be able to choose that over moving to a city or somewhere that perhaps made more locational practical sense for them at that time with young children but i think they wanted us to have that experience and so i'll be forever grateful to them for, for doing that it sounds almost like nature chose you as much as you chose <laughs> it to you're kind of literally Maybe. ensnared by it <laughs> we're forced yeah it forced itself upon us <laughs> <laughs> rattling at the windows but i mean you said yeah. that you never really saw yourself in in this space um mm. that, that you now inhabit so how did this yeah sort of a <laughs> captivated um child then forge a career path uh i still still don't really know um i think it, i feel like i've kind of muddled along but then also had a very clear vision at the same time um i my brother always wanted to be a doctor and he's now a doctor and i was always jealous of his um he just knew what he wanted to be straight away and had it had a name and he went and did it and loves it and i didn't know i didn't have a name for the things i was interested in and even then it was always like what do you want to do when you grow up what's your job you know it needs a name and i didn't have a name because i was just like well i'm interested in this i like being outside i love animals and i want all the animals to be okay but i don't know what job that is apart from being a vet so I did the classic thing of wanting to be a vet and telling everyone I wanted to be a vet. And then I was good at school, but I was not so good at maths and chemistry and you needed those subjects at the time to go into vet school. So I did zoology because it was broad enough that there were options after that. And all I wanted to do was just learn about more about animals. But um, I found that quite a difficult degree. It's a very hard degree at Bristol. Um, and it was so broad, I kind of was left with too many options at the end. Um, and I had applied and got into two different masters and was also slightly playing with the idea of going into the Navy myself or going into environmental law, also played around with physio and um, basically was just trying everything and not really finding what I liked doing. Um, and then I came across this masters at UWE called Science Communication. And I read about it and I thought, oh, you need a science degree. I've got that. It's vocational. That sounds good. As in you learn kind of life skills and it felt a bit more like a job. It felt like it would lead a bit more to something that would actually be something I could be employed to do. Um, and so I went and did that. And that was the, the, the turning point, really, where. Um, yes, I was still and always have been quite shy. Despite what people see on social media. Um, <laughs> and but it was an opportunity to basically get people excited about the subjects that i got excited about 
and find ways to do that, whether it was podcasting, writing, um, public talks, school talks, science shows, and science communication at that point, so we're talking 2017, was still a very new buzzword. And it was a very exciting time because Blue Planet 2 had just come out. The whole plastic campaign, anti-plastic campaign was really gaining legs on social media. Social media was suddenly becoming um, an amazing platform for people to share their concerns and joy um, for nature in the natural world. And natural history content and nature content was really beginning to fly on Instagram and Twitter. And TikTok didn't exist. Instagram stories didn't exist. But I think people suddenly started to enjoy sharing photos of uh, not just their food, but of their local walk or a lovely sunset or the sea or something. And so suddenly I think people's expectation and appetite for what they saw on social media changed. And I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the challenge of translating, say, research and science onto these platforms that were largely visual and needed to be punchy and dynamic and fast paced. Um, and so uh, I did, that's what I did my dissertation on. I looked at how social media can communicate science better and then um, was volunteering at the time for RSPB and um, kind of doing some ad hoc freelancey stuff for the Wildlife Trust and kind of writing along the side and trying to get commissions and writing for blogs and articles and doing lots of free and working in a shop to actually earn money, um, but still dabbling my feet into sort of what science communication could be but not really getting a job in it. And so it was a sort of quite a difficult year and a half of working two different retail jobs, trying to build a portfolio, and then um, trying to get into conservation and applying to lots of conservation communications jobs. Um, and I didn't get any of them. Uh, so again, that was like a confidence knock of like, oh, maybe this isn't meant to be. But then Beaver Trust came along and, um, and it kind of all sort of started to happen from there and um yeah so it's kind of i've i've i feel incredibly lucky that i'm in a place where i'm sort of able to have a lot of autonomy in the work that i do and feel like i'm working in the sort of bowels of conservation in britain at the moment for beaver trust doing restoration and rewilding but then also to be able to tap into that creative side and and do writing um and I think it's been a mixture of luck but then also quite a lot of persistence as well and then to have support from my parents to be able to sort of have a go at different things and fail along the way but then carry on <laughs> and do you think that the world that we now live in needs more communicators over clinicians i do and funnily enough that's something that um so when i was thinking about quite seriously about going to graduate vet school i was in i was doing a surgical uh work experience placement at bristol veterinary hospital and in a lunch break i was chatting to one of the clinicians about um what I was doing at uni at the time, which was a module called Public Engagement with Science. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of enjoying it. We're doing like lots of engagement with schools. And we went fossil hunting the other day and it was quite fun, like just um, telling the kids about science and seeing them get excited about it. And um, the clinician, the, the surgeon, the vet surgeon said, you know, to be honest, there are more graduates coming out of vet school that are struggling for jobs than there are jobs available. Um, I don't know if it's it may have changed now. I think a few new vet schools have opened up, but basically he said, we don't need more clinicians. We need more researchers. We need more communicators. We need more veterinary journalists. We need more people to be that middle person between research and the public because more and more stuff is happening in the natural world that is blurring the lines between people and nature that the public need to know about. And there are, there's there's more noise online that allows things like fake news and misinformation and inaccurate science to slip through the gaps. So the public, poor public, are there like, well, I want to do something, but where on earth do I get this information? Or how do I know what to trust or who to trust? Or, um, you know, where that person got that terrifying sounding statistic. So um, 
that was the that was the pinching point I think for me was when he said that because when I was like oh well it's the first time that I recognize maybe my skill sets lay more in that translation aspect than in the sort of um that my skill sets lay in the more translation aspect as opposed to the more sort of medical clinician side of things and I'm really glad you know much as I probably would have loved veterinary medicine I think I find this more fulfilling and it feels like a more urgent task than just euthanizing animals and dealing with that sort of things which is a very narrow view of veterinary medicine but I've got a couple of friends who are vets and they say that their work is um, disproportionately difficult and I it's interesting that you use the word translation there or translator um in conjunction with your role and you do have this distinctly kind of undidactic quite humble approach in your writing where you are coming along Side the reader and and you feel like you're you're learning alongside them as well that you are in that process of learning which is something that we we touched on earlier a little bit and I'm curious kind of if that was a conscious decision at the time and what what informed that approach uh, um yeah I think uh I had been um I think I've described this elsewhere as a frustrated reader at times of natural history books where I felt that the author just knows so much and I'm intimidated by how much they know and it's just quite dense and fact heavy fascinating and obviously incredibly well written and researched but sometimes I just want a good story or I don't need to I don't want to sort of feel that the author has uh, a sort of a, or a fountain of knowledge I just want to kind of feel that you're there too and that they remember the reader is is there and um I think it was really important to me to not know anything about each of the 10 species before I started researching them because I wanted to be learning alongside the reader because I think when you're reading a book where you feel like you're you know the author a little bit um, and that they're almost equally surprised at the same time as you about certain things. I think it just makes for a more organic, collaborative experience between author and reader, and it puts the author more on a level with the reader and not, you know, up here telling reader down here what to think and, and what to say. I wanted to leave lots of space for the, the, the species and their stories and for the opinions of the scientists and expert I interview along the way, I wanted to leave lots of room for them to breathe and to allow the reader to form their own opinion about stuff um, and not to just dump them with information and then just hope that they'll do something about it. Um, and it made it more enjoyable for me as well. And I think I wanted the, the science communication aspect of it to be as accessible, but also as accurate and impactful as possible. And I think that would have felt different had I um, gone and approached it from a position of, I know loads about this animal, let me tell you, as opposed to, well, let's go out and find out a little bit about it together and then hear from the actual people who are studying it actively and know a lot more about it and let them supplement our knowledge. And I'm just the messenger pulling it together, which I enjoy far more than being the the person who knows stuff but I learned I, I love learning and I loved that I could just have the opportunity to learn as much as I could along the way and then share that with the reader it was like kind of real-time chatter which was fun to do because mm, it's not just about your connections to the animals but also to these well the experts in in their fields that that you also meet along the way mm. and I wonder what what were some of the things that you took from those meetings? Um, oh, gosh. Um, I mean, meeting, I, I interviewed, I think, about 70 scientists and experts and researchers and naturalists throughout the process of writing the book. And it was some of the most enjoyable parts of the whole process for me because I wanted the book to be as much of a celebration of people and our own species as it is about a celebration of the nature that we talk about and the, and the 10 species 
uh, because I think humans are often overlooked and I don't it makes me sad when we we vilify ourselves when yes we are the cause of lots of these troubles but also we're the solution and we're clever enough and smart enough to, to get ourselves out of this mess and there are it, it was so exciting to um discover that I set out to to look for the expert in say black guillemots or the expert in the grey longed bat slightly secretly hoping that I would encounter many women um and I was so pleasantly surprised when I would approach say a man who I found on the internet <laughs> that sounds weird <laughs> like a professor so-and-so of expert <laughs> expert in grey long-eared bats and he would be like oh no you need to talk to Dr Ollie Rasga who is running this amazing team X university looking at this bat and she is like the expert in Europe on this bat and um so there were lots of there were lots of moments where the expert just so happened to be um a woman or better still a young woman studying a master's or a PhD or or a young man studying for a PhD or just someone who's really enthused about the species and that has made them a real port of call when you want to find out certain facts about them so um it was really exciting to see a really fired up next generation of academics and meet them and to hear what they're up to and what funding they're getting to do cool research that's finding solutions to big problems and to be reminded that stuff is happening as we're speaking to try and sort these things out and to try and help big problems that you hear about on the news, but you, you, you hear about the problems on the news, but you don't hear about things that are happening to try and help. And so I think that's really unhelpful for a concerned and anxious public who are just hearing bad news after bad news after bad news of the environment. It's not balanced by the good things that are happening. And I think we need those injections of hope a lot more than we're getting to be fuel. It's like being on an ultra marathon or a marathon. You need to have the nice treats to look forward to, to help push you to the finish line. Um, and we're not getting enough of that. We're getting the bad stuff too much. And that's not good nutrition, I think, for our eco-anxiety. Would you say that it was actually that, that hope and joy that perhaps most surprised you on this journey in a way? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, being tasked to write a book about climate change, immediately my brain was like, well, this is going to be gloomy. How can I not make it gloomy? Um, obviously, I was ecstatic, but I think I thought, well, it, it wouldn't be true to myself if I lent into the doom and gloom too much. And I don't think I mentally could have done that. I couldn't have written for that long if it was too hard and too not necessarily too truthful, um, but just if it was, yeah, the classic doom and gloom approach. Um, but I think, um, sorry, I've completely forgotten your question. My brain has just suddenly gone off. What surprised you the most on the oh, journey? Surprised, and whether yes, it was sorry. the hope. <laughs> the, the hope, yes. I think, well, naturally I'm quite an optimistic person, but I think the fact that actually climate change um, works in so many fascinating ways and I was just I went in kind of slightly blindly being like climate change equals extreme weather climate change equals raising temperatures climate change equals I don't know drought and more rainfall and ocean acidification but I didn't realize that climate change can also open doors for species that haven't been opened in centuries climate change can actually also be an opportunity for some species to perhaps be more successful than they have been before so climate change isn't all bad it's just whether the landscape is resilient enough to kind of deal with those wobbles and that bit of short-term turbulence and resettle and so for some species like the grey longed bat which is britain's rarest bat their numbers are really low here in britain at the moment and a stronghold is in the iberian peninsula in spain um, but as the climate in the UK warms, it could be that our climate becomes, it, the, the climate in the, the Iberian Peninsula becomes too hot to handle. And so that could force a northerly rain shift, rain shift, sorry, for the, the sort of bulk of the grey longer bat population. 
and actually make Britain a more hospitable place for it. So climate change is very nuanced and very dynamic and it's fascinating to learn about all the different ways it can affect these species. Um, and so I think I was surprised at how it wasn't necessarily terrible news for every species. There's so much more to it. And I think that's an exciting opportunity um, for us to sort of grip onto in feelings of despair of like, well, actually, it's not it's not all bad. There are amazing people working behind the scenes. And for some species, it could actually be good news. But it's how do we balance those realities so that it's not a constant roller coaster of winners and losers. And did your manner of travel as well between locations, because you chose um, deliberately to travel in a low carbon fashion and, and did that slower means of traveling also allow mm -hmm. you to discover more about the landscape? Yeah, totally. I think um, traveling by low carbon means was uh, as much as possible during the pandemic um, <laughs> was uh, a vital element of the narrative. And it was nice to have that constant thing to return back to. And you're right, I think it, 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 again, as cliche as it sounds, it made it immediately about the journey and not the destination. And in some cases, as you'll read, um, if you'll read, the destination wasn't necessarily all it was cracked up to be or what I thought. There's a lot of failure in the book, which I think is part of the reality of going out in nature. It, nothing ever goes to plan. And so embracing that experience and the whole thrill of the chase and the whole journey which is facilitated by getting on multiple trains or under your own steam on your bike it just makes it more adventurous and i think as humans we're meant to go slower we've created this horrendous pace of life for ourselves which our bodies just aren't designed to deal with and they don't deal with it well which is why we're in a mental health crisis and and a well-being crisis because our bodies are just like please stop this is not the hustle we need we need to live a slower pace we need to retune our body clocks to the, the the clock of the planet and not the clocks on our phones and everything and um so i loved how i always measure it by do, do you get this way you get different kinds of tiredness so you get at the end of a work day or a work week I've been on the computer all week and it's funny how conservation is large or my work in conservation is so computer based I think people think I frolic around a beaver wetland every week but I really don't um <laughs> I'm exhausted in a very different way from looking at a screen than I am if I've been riding all day with a completely laden bike and I'm physically exhausted but mentally really energized mm -hmm. um Whereas it's the total opposite when I've had a week at work, sat on my bum, looking at a screen, I am mentally exhausted and I hate that feeling. And it's just so, it just feels so right to be outside pushing yourself physically and then that to be, for that to be freeing your brain of the shackles that modern life places on it. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about going on a week long massive bikepacking expedition. I'm going, I'm talking about you know, cycling to a new place for a couple hours or even just going on a walk for an afternoon if you've got a day off. Look on a map and pick somewhere you've never been before. See if you can get a bus there. Trying something new and going somewhere new is so amazing for your well-being and for your mental health and for your physical health and just your general attitude to life and to the natural world and perspective shifting. And so I honestly cannot advocate the slower pace of travel more yes you get the frustrations of public transport that is completely inevitable um but when you look back on it it's kind of all part of the adventure and so if you do get somewhere you're, you're expecting to see a certain species and they're not there if you've had a bit of an expedition to get there it's kind of all right and it's kind of not what's important the important thing is that you've shown up and you've given it a go and no doubt you'll try again um, so yeah, I think everybody, especially in their sort of teens and twenties and thirties, especially on your own, there's something about traveling solo that's really special. I think you should just, if, if you, if you do something every now and again, that ever so slightly scares you, 
I think it's only going to have benefits for your sort of general approach to life. I totally agree. And I love the fact as well that the animals in the book that that you do um, do encounter, they are anti-heroic aren't they? <laughs> they totally are most notably the dung beetle um, <laughs> and was that again kind of part of a concerted strategy from from the outset yeah definitely I just you know I feel that we've had too many puffins too many whales too many beavers now um too many bus flies although I have got a bus fly but it was deliberate to do a bus fly in chapter one because I thought we'd sort of ease everybody in with something they know and then we'll get to the dung beetles a bit later um <laughs> but yeah I just wanted species you know that, that, that people haven't encountered before and that I hadn't encountered before and that people would be surprised by um and the the dung beetles chapter ended up being one of the most fun to write because I thought well how can I make an animal that people just turn their nose up at seem amazing and how can we talk about it in a way that will make people look at a cow pat differently um and i don't know whether i've achieved that but it, it certainly worked for me in that i never look at a cow pat in the same way as i did before um and so i think it's just again trying to sort of flip things on their heads and remind people that the old ways of looking at things don't have to stay and we can have a new relationship with nature that's really exciting and that we can remind ourselves that there are hundreds and thousands of other species that um, deserve our time and our attention and that, that, that have stories to tell that we need to hear. So, um, yeah, I loved choosing the kind of uglier underdogs, as it were. Well, it has a lovely lightness and vulnerability about it, too. And I wonder what what is your relationship with more vocal, maybe headline grabbing modes of activism? And what do you think currently is perhaps the most effective means of campaigning for change? Um, it's a tricky one. I, I've, I've struggled with my opinion on these sorts of things recently because with the groups behind um extinction rebellion and just stop oil um you see them on the headlines and you see them doing their demonstrations and you can't help but feel well i feel incredibly in awe of them for their bravery and their courage and the fact that they've advanced the conversations faster maybe in some in some cases by years which is just mad um is breathtaking how they've done that and sacrificed their lives in many ways and their careers and their reputations to just desperately try and get people to listen it's amazing but I also feel very very sad when I see those people because they look so distressed and so almost in some cases unwell um and I don't know how sustainable that mode of activity activism is because it's a very fight or flight stress response it's very reactive um despite probably being very carefully planned over weeks and weeks um whereas i don't think if we're i personally think that we have to be in a good mental frame of mind and well in ourselves before we start encouraging action for the planet because I don't think we're going to be in a good frame of mind to make good choices and offer sound advice and inspire people in a positive way if we are not in a good place mentally. Um, because it's just not going to come across well and it's going to be short lived and it's going to be exhausting. You know, it, activism is absolutely exhausting. And so I think there's a better way. Well, I certainly, I can only advocate for, for the stuff that I've done, which is kind of more, I guess, science-led and in conservation. Not that the Just Stop Oil thing isn't science-led, but I find that working in conservation directly helps me deal with eco-anxiety that I have because I feel like I'm working in a team that A, really cares, and B, is actually doing stuff. And you know, I feel incredibly lucky to be in a team that is 
moving beavers around the country and having positive impacts on many rivers, which will have lasting effects on a landscape. And I need that measurable, tangible result to help energise me to keep doing what I'm doing. So I think because I'm slightly introverted and I don't think it it doesn't sit well with me to come across as angry and really heavily emotional on social media. I think it would come out wrong. I think it would exhaust me. I don't think it would be good for my mental health. And I think I won't be able to do the work that I'm doing well and have the impact that I want to have if I'm taking that approach. So it's personally not for me. And I think it's tricky when you've got family members who've perhaps been massively inconvenienced or um, uh, have had like, you know, my my brother's a doctor and he works in A&E. And if he couldn't get to work because of a demonstration, and that could have an impact, a serious impact on lives that come through the A&E doors. That's when I start to have a moral challenge with it. So I think there's a there's a balance. And I just worry that sometimes the very emotionally charged activism can actually be a little bit counterproductive and can actually de- um, deter people from joining the movement because they think, well, that's not me and I can't do that. Uh, so I can't sign up to that approach. And it might disconnect them at a really crucial point where we need more people to connect than ever. So I think it's a balance of different kinds of activism. And I think it's it's activism, again, is an incredibly personal thing. It can mean something totally different to every single person. Activism can be writing climate poetry or it can be going to a climate cafe and just having a chat with other people. Or it can be chaining yourself to a bridge and having big headline grabbing um, demonstrations. So I think it's figuring out what climate action means for you or what activism means for you and to not feel pressure that it has to be a certain thing or look a certain way. And that boils down again to that notion of creativity that we were discussing and and being flexible Mm. with how you approach things and cross-pollinating. And thank you so much for that reflection, Sophie, because it's not one that I've heard before and it really does testify to your compassion um and reflects so much of how well both in in your book and how you communicate um in terms of putting nature and biodiversity and humans all kind of literally on on the same page and and closing that cycle because it is that relationship which you've described Mm. as a familial one which will carry us forwards with these mm. problems. Mm. I think so. I think we, we have to be compassionate about it. And um, I, I just feel worried when I see that kind of activism um, as opposed to inspired in many ways. I, I'm in awe and I'm massively kind of respectful of it. And I utterly respect what they're doing, but I worry about the longevity of the impact there and whether it will really cause the change that we need it to. I don't have the answer, but if I'm honest, I am worried when I see those things. And I know that for you, imminently, we've got the paperback version of your book mm. coming out so that people can be inspired <laughs> by your words. And is that this month? Um, yeah, so the paperback is released um, at the end of June, which is exciting. That's come along quickly. And um, it's going to look exactly the same. So still the nice forget-me-not blue cover. Um, and there's a little bit of updated information on some of the species, which, which is exciting, because obviously science moves very fast in some cases. And with your other projects, where is your energy being directed for the rest of this year? Um, oh, well, um, busy beavers are keeping me busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my job at Beaver Trust is um, quite busy. So that is that is taking up a bit of time. Um, but yeah, I have some more projects on the go, on the, on the back burner, as it were. Um, so just kind of psyching myself up to get stuck into those. But unfortunately, that's all I can say. <laughs> 
it's so grim of me to say that watch this face everyone (laughs) (laughs) also I just want to get outside as much as possible and have perhaps a more I'm enjoying a more distance relationship with social media which is just only having benefits in my life which is interesting yeah I think everyone can do with mindful mindful responsibility over consumption of social media I think is only Mm -hmm. a good thing (laughs) yeah and may I ask you, Sophie, just to close the question I ask all my de- guests, not desks, guests. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get away from the desk <laughs> into the outdoors. But what does joy mean to you? Um, joy means feeling free and unconfined. I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.